Amen. Welcome to Creekside Church. It's great to see everyone here today. Um, if you guys would come on in and find a seat, let's just, uh, let's just bow our heads and uh, commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are just thankful for another morning to be in your presence. Uh, there is no one greater than Jesus. Father, we're here to sing about him, to worship him, um, and to just be reminded about what his great love means for us, how it transforms our lives and gives us a hope and a purpose for the future. Um, Father, we just pray that you would bless our time together. You would encourage every heart. You would draw us close to yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Just a few announcements and reminders. First of all, I hope you're getting the weekly email. And we aren't passing out bulletins every morning when you come. So if you're not getting the weekly Creekside news, uh, then you are missing out on some things because we can't cover everything every Sunday morning. So here's a few reminders. There's a, a, a workshop tonight. Uh, Brett Rickley, is, uh, he has been here before a few years back, a really, really great uh, presenter and um, really passionate about the topic of evangelism. And so he is going to be sharing some, some things from maybe from a little different vantage point than, uh, than uh, last week, and Micah was here. So from 6 to 8, there will be a workshop. You can come on out. We'll be here in the fellowship hall. We'll also be available on Zoom. Another reminder, the final week for Jonah in July is this Wednesday night. So that is uh, this Wednesday night, 6.30. And Sunday school is back this morning. So we're excited for, uh, for that. I know kids have been waiting, and we've been trying to get uh, just all the details figured out. So those things went out uh, via email this week. And um, one just minor tweak to the exiting procedure. Um, we had said that the kids would, could be picked up at the bottom of the stairs, but the teachers are actually going to uh, bring the kids back uh, down during the communion time. So the, the teachers will bring the kids back. Then they can, can join their families and uh, exit with their families. Uh, final thing on, on that point, uh, on the exiting procedure, we've made a couple of changes. So we've gotten used to the ushers coming and releasing people. We are, we are moving away from that. And what we will be doing is during the final song, if you would like to exit with some extra space and distancing, you are free and welcome to do that. Um, so you can re release yourself during the final song. Otherwise, if you wait till the end of the song, um, we can all exit together and move outside. I do think we will have uh, Ryan, the enforcer in the lobby, helping to move people along if people start crowding up the lobby too much. Um, also, if you're in the fellowship hall, it works really well to exit out through the kitchen. You can exit through the kitchen and out the preschool doors. That way it gives us a little more space to, uh, to do that. So you can exit out through the kitchen, out through the preschool doors, and, uh, and visit out front. I think that's everything I have. I'm going to ask Steve to come on up. Well, good morning, everybody. It is, uh, yeah, it's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you are in uh, Sunday school... You are dismissed at this time. I don't know if that was an official announcement yet, but uh, you're free to leave if you're up through fifth grade. Is that right? Okay, I got the thumbs up on that. So we're uh, up through fifth grade. So I know some of you would like to go to Sunday school, but you're a little bit too old for that. So we're going to ask you to join us this morning. Um, I just invite you to pray with me, if you would, as we turn our hearts to the Lord. Father, 
I know that in my own heart I find myself upset sometimes and I find myself with these thoughts of uh, frustration and anger and I just come to you this morning because I I don't think that I'm alone in that there's a just we live in these tumultuous times with pandemic and riots and uh, all sorts of uh, crazy things happening in our country and the world and I just pray in my own heart and for each of us we're here this morning and listening online that you would just calm our hearts and quiet our spirits as we come before you. Help us to set aside all of the things that have been accumulating, accumulating and that have been competing for our thoughts and our devotion, our attention, and let us turn to you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, Father, that you would speak your truth for your time. Lord, let us not waver from the only message that has the hope that will bring change that is substantive, that is significant, that is eternal. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Probably not surprising to you, but the same information that is used to steal our identity is the same information that's used to confirm our identity. Your name, your date of birth, your address, your social security number. But when Jesus came on the earth, there weren't these modern ways of confirming a person's identity. I mean, when Jesus showed up saying, I am the Messiah, the promised Old Testament Messiah. He didn't pull out his passport and flash it in front of customs and immigration to prove that he was who he said he was. No. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the writer has meticulously tried to confirm for us the identity of Jesus. Jesus' Messiahship was attested through his royal heritage and lineage in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, it was confirmed through his prophetic fulfillment of several prophecies that were given there. In chapter 3, the king was inaugurated at his baptism and pronounced to be the king through his father's proclamation. Then his credentials were verified in chapter 4 as he overcame the temptation in the wilderness. In chapters 5 through 7, the king's identity was validated through his profound instruction. And now we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, his identity is proven through the power that he displays in several different instances, not only in chapter 8, but in chapter 9, selected particularly, not the exclusive, exhaustive list of miracles that Jesus did, but to give us validation. So Matthew is moving from this denunciation, this decrying, or this discrediting, if you will, of false religion, snobbery, if you will, 
of the religious hypocrisy to the demonstration of Jesus as the true Messiah. And so we see in Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, which I would invite you to find in your Bible or on your phone or your device or whatever, and I'll read through the text, but here we find three demonstrations of Jesus' power that confirm his identity as the King of glory, the Messiah, King of, King of the Jews and Lord of the nations. Okay, But these demonstrations that prove his identity also challenge us. They should challenge us if we are an unbeliever. They should challenge us to accept him as the Messiah, to trust him for salvation. They should convince us as believers to seek him, to do mighty works of power, which he's capable of doing, to show his mercy as he did to these, as we see, who were the outcast, the underprivileged, the least of these in his society, and to share his message without discrimination to everybody, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to everybody. And so I'll read the text, and then we'll unpack these three demonstrations of his power. Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, which is a new section, okay, in the entire book. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him, and saying, Lord, my servant lying paralyzed at home is, is lying paralyzed at home, suffering in great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to a slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick and bed with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and waited on him and when evening had come they brought to him many who were demon possessed and cast out the and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were ill in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. The first demonstration of his power is that we observe Jesus' authority, Jesus's authority, okay, it's hard to say that, you know, with that possessive uh, there, over leprosy. 
So there are three considerations that are the same for this instance as they are for the next instance with the centurion. But first of all, what's the predicament? What's going on? Jesus is descending from the same mountain upon which he had given the Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 1, you'd see he went up into a mountain and spoke to the disciples and the multitude followed him. And he comes down from the mountain and guess what? The same multitude followed him down from the mountain. And from among that multitude came a leper. A leper came up to meet Jesus. The same crowd who was amazed and the description of leprosy that we have from the Bible paints a very dismal picture. Look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 12, and this is the comment that Aaron makes about Miriam. And he says, oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when she comes, when he comes from his mother's womb. You see, leprosy was a, was a, a, a disease of the skin. It left scars and sores and it left them very, very unpleasant. And the Jews abhorred the disease, not just because of what it did to the person. But because if that person came in contact with you, then you were unclean. And what that meant was you could not worship God in the temple. So you were alienated from God. In fact, lepers were quarantined outside the city and if they ever broke the quarantine and came in contact with people they'd have to walk through the crowd or in presence of people and they'd have to cry out unclean unclean they'd have to declare to themselves i was thinking at least we haven't gone that far with this covid 19 thing but almost right i mean we quarantine people oh you get it <laughs> i mean we don't even quarantine them if they get it we quarantine them if they travel in certain places, you, if you go, you have to stay in lockdown for 14 days, or you're supposed to. Unless, I suppose, if you're in positions of power and authority, you, you can make the laws, you're just not subject to them. Leprosy. And so she, and there was basically, there's no cure for leprosy. It, it, it was cured from time to time, but they didn't have some magic uh, medicine that would, would, would cure this stuff. Now we see the perspective. What's the perspective of the leper? The leper's faith is expressed in two ways. First of all, he approached Jesus humbly. Now perhaps he sensed that Jesus was compassionate. We don't know that for sure. But regardless, he came to Jesus. This, this leper came to Jesus. Desperate, but not demanding. Desperate, not demanding. Now, so both in his posture... He bowed down to the Lord. And in his proclamation, he called him Lord. You're my master. You're my ruler. He evidenced his respect and his humility. He would bow only to God. Some of you are aware of the story about Sam Coonrod, a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants this week, earlier this week, uh, during the opening game, the first game of the season. He was the only one for both teams that refused to kneel and he said the reason he didn't is because he bowed only to God here we have a leper whose commitment is to bow and in doing so he acknowledges that Jesus is his supreme being superior to him better than him acknowledges who he is then he approached not only with humility but with confidence look at the end of verse 2 it says Lord if you are willing 
You can heal me. You can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. I love in both, he acknowledged Jesus' prerogative. Now that's a word which means his will, ability to choose. Jesus' prerogative as well as Jesus' power. If you are willing, you are able. I know you can do it. The question is, will you? You know, Marla and I have been married almost 34 years. And never once has she said to me, Steve, if you're willing, you could be on the PGA Tour. Never once has she said that I could play professional golf. If you're willing. Well, the fact is, even if I was willing, I'm not able. There is no way. It's not my choice to decide whether I play professional golf, and it's not within my ability to do so. But Jesus is willing sometimes, but always able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ever ask or think. He's God in the flesh, now seated at the right hand of the Father, able to do anything. Willing? Not always. Able? Always. And this man acknowledges that before God. Confident that he is willing, and he, if he's willing, he's able. Then we see the power of Jesus. Immediately Jesus says, and he stretched out his hand, verse 3, and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And the text says, immediately he was cleansed. I am willing. Notice the compassion of Jesus. But don't miss the controversy. He reached out his hand and he the leper, which would have rendered him ceremonially unclean. He, he could have, would have been forbidden to be in the temple and worship, except for the fact that the opposite happened. Jesus didn't become unclean. The leper became clean. Now, I don't walk around asking people, do you have COVID-19, because if you do, I'll just touch you, and I'm healthy right now, and you'll be made well. Not going there. And even people who touch people with it, they don't transfer their health to the other person. It always works the other way around, with everybody except for Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? If you're willing... He knows, and instantaneously and completely. This is not some, let's give it a few whirls and see if it happens. No, this is Jesus touched him, said, be clean, he's clean. Immediately, the scabs, the scars, the scales, and the sores were removed, and he had this baby skin, supple and tender skin, just like that. The power of Christ in that place. Now he says something interesting. Okay, let's just keep this between us. That's my translation of verse 4, okay? Yeah, let's just keep it between us. I mean, it's kind of a nice little in-house secret, right? Now, why would Jesus say that? I mean, it's like, don't tell anybody. We don't know for sure why Jesus would say that, but I, I think maybe Jesus wanted to avoid this healing hysteria that would... would foment into people believing that the main reason Jesus came was to physically heal people, which wasn't the main reason Jesus came. Okay. 
we were on vacation one year, and uh, I, I wanted to see something, and I wanted to take my family to see something, but we couldn't see it in this park that we were at. And so I was at the information building, and I asked the park ranger, I said, we really want to see this, but we can't see it in the park. Can you tell me somewhere around here that we can go and see this? And so he said, well, I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but and he reached down under the table, and so I assume that he's told other people, and he pulled out a map, and he, and he gave me uh, directions to go see this spectacular sight, not in the park. He says, now let's just keep this between us. Leper and Jesus, just, just, just between them. Why? Well, he didn't want everybody and their dog and pony to run up to wherever this place was and inundate that place with tourists. And Jesus, I don't think, wanted the, the whole place to go crazy. But in the absence of modern medicine, I mean, think about how crazy we are, and we have modern medicine. What if there's no modern medicine? I mean, a disease like leprosy was real, and it was widespread sometimes, and it, was, it would ruin you. I mean, would you want to walk around in public? I mean, I guess... I'm not sure what we make of everybody walking around with or without masks, but sometimes it's like, do you think that person is infected or are they not infected? Or, you know, but you had to declare it unclean, unclean, unclean. No, this would be devastating. Jesus didn't want to draw attention to himself unnecessarily, but he told the guy, go tell the priest and offer the sacrifice because Jesus came what? Not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He wasn't in contrast to the law. He was there to fulfill the law. And Christ's touch and his tender proclamation, I am willing, be cleansed. It should convey, it does convey, I think, compassion. You see, the Lord has compassion. I don't know. Some of us have physical ailments. Some of us have emotional scars. Some of us have difficulties and challenges that we're faced with. And guess what? The Lord cares. And the Lord knows. And the Lord is able to deliver us from or to walk with us through, whichever he chooses, all of that. And that's a message that Jesus conveyed to this outcast, the first of the outcasts that he dealt with. And it's a message that I think he wants us to know as well. You know, we've got people here who've come and recently new to America. That's got to be traumatic. That's got to be difficult. We've got people who have had COVID. We've got people who are going to get COVID. We have people who have cancer. We've got people who are going to get cancer. We've got people who you know, have other difficulties and struggles. And guess what? He is able. He may not always be willing to deliver us from, but he's always able to deliver us through. Whatever he brings us. Secondly, we observe Jesus' authority over paralysis. This is the story of the centurion. Look at verse 5. And when he had entered Capernaum, Capernaum was Jesus' home spot. I want you to see, I think we have a map. You can look on the, where, where Capernaum is at. Okay, it's the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. That may not mean a lot to you, but this was Jesus' home base during his adult life. Okay. And it's fascinating to me because in this instance, he's coming into Capernaum and he's met, there's a, there's a centurion there. And the text says, and when he had come to Capernaum, a centurion came to him entreating 
him. Okay. Now, let's look at the predicament. There's a centurion. He's a ruler of a hundred Roman troops. Centurions were not very well liked by the Jewish people. Why not? First of all, they were Gentiles. Secondly, he was a commander of the occupying army. <laughs> and they were usually vile and vulgar guys, these Roman soldiers. Okay, So there was not much that would endear Jesus to him. And he approached Jesus, or as I think we will see at least he or he approached Jesus through surrogates. If you looked at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, uh, it, may, it seems to indicate that others came on his behalf, but they were coming for him. And so they said, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. Now, get this. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, Israelites and non-Israelites. This is a racial issue right here, folks. Okay, Because a Roman is not an Israelite. So there is an ethnic barrier there. And there is a cultural barrier. Because the Romans were the oppressors and the Israelite people were the oppressed. So there were ethnic and cultural barriers for Jesus even interacting with this person. Doing anything with this person that were taboo. Okay. James Keener in his commentary speaks about Jesus' interaction with Gentiles. And he says this. The Gentile mission was peripheral to Jesus' earthly ministry. And he did not actively seek out Gentiles for ministry. So this is quite an exception for Jesus' earthly ministry. But what it does is it alerts us to the fact that Jesus' ministry was to all people. Jesus broke the cultural, broke the ethnic barriers to interact with this particular individual. Okay? He was there. That was, the, that was the situation before him. Okay, And now what's the perspective of the centurion? That's the predicament. What's the perspective of the centurion? Well, the centurion, like the leper, demonstrates his faith in the same two ways. He comes humbly. You know, the, He's very humble. The word Lord, used in verse 6, okay, he, 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 addressed the, the, he addressed Jesus using the word Lord in verse 6 and also in verse 8. Lord and Lord, two times. Now, for a Roman centurion, a ruler of a hundred troops, to use a term that would designate someone else as their master, someone else as their superior, besides a Roman person, was to demonstrate his own humility, was to demonstrate his own understanding of his servitude before someone greater than himself. I worked for a, a farmer when I was a senior in high school. And this was a, a hog and a cattle and a, a row crop farm. So there, was a, there were a lot of things to do. And my boss, the owner of the place, was very wealthy. And he was very well established in the community. He was an influential person. But there was nothing he ever asked me to do that he would not willingly join with me in doing. I remember one day he said to me, Steve, come on, let's go. So I jumped in the pickup and we rode, drove over to this other farm and there was this huge barn that had previously been full of hogs. And when pigs stay in a barn for a certain length of time, they leave residual matter. Okay, And uh, there was plenty of this residual matter. Uh, and it was our job. I figured he took me over there to drop me off to eliminate the residual matter. But no. 
he had a scoop shovel. I had a scoop shovel. We both worked there for uh, a length of time until we got rid of the He was a very humble man. Asked me to do nothing that he would not willingly do himself. And the centurion said, demonstrated his own humility as he came to Jesus. He understood that Jesus had the power to do whatever. And when Jesus consented to go, we see that Jesus said, I'll, I'll go and heal him. Luke, cha Luke chapter 7 tells us that he was already on his way when this centurion sent friends to tell Jesus, no, don't come. Don't come. He told him to stay away. Now, in Luke, it's interesting because the centurion's friends... And Jewish leaders, they thought way more of this guy than he thought of himself. They said, oh, he's worthy for you to do this. But they sent, he was sent, and they were sent to Jesus and said, don't come. I'm not worthy for you, it says in verse 8, to come into your house. I was at a conference for pastors one time, and they had a panel. And the title for the panel was, a panel of celebrity pastors, okay? So, uh, John MacArthur and John Piper and uh, Kevin DeYoung and David Platt and Matt Chandler were the celebrity pastors. I remember one of them saying, as they got into the discussion, and, and this is a loose quotation, he says, this whole discussion is frightening to me because I've battled with pride and I fear falling. He didn't want, as one of the panel members, to be seen as a celebrity pastor. It's frightened him because he understood his own heart. You see in the heart of the centurion how he is, has a good understanding of who he is in light of, of who Jesus is. But he approaches confidently. You see in verse 8, he says, But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. All you got to do is speak up confidence in God's and Christ's ability and his authority, which I think we have lost our understanding. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of by the word of his mouth, verse 9, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Go back to Genesis 1. Let there be light. Boom, there was light. Let there be trees and things that grow in the ground. Boom, and there it was. He spoke and it was done. And so the centurion says, yeah, Jesus, all you got to do is say the word and it'll happen. Amazing. And why would he think that? Well, he compared Jesus' authority to his own military command in verse 9. He says, I too am a, uh, am a person in authority. And I say to this slave, go, and he goes. Or this soldier, and he goes. I say to this soldier, come, and he comes. I say to the slave, do this, and he does that. He says, Jesus, in the same way, I trust that in the same way I have absolute authority over my soldiers and slaves, you have authority over this disease. Just say the word. Simple as that. You are able to do it. Verse 10. Jesus said, it text says, and when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now don't lose this, because 
This word, this particular word, marveled, means astonished. It's translated astonished, I think, in the New American Standard. I think, I'm not sure what it is in the ESV. I didn't check that particularly, but I think it's probably marveled or astonished, something like that. Here's the deal. It's only used two times in the New Testament. It's used once here when Jesus marveled at this Gentile soldier's faith. And then it's used in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Of the people of Capernaum. Now, where's Jesus at when he meets this centurion? Capernaum. It's used of Jesus marveling at their unbelief. So twice, he marvels at the centurion's belief in Capernaum, and he marvels at the Capernaum's unbelief in Capernaum. Wow. I remember, and I may have told you this before, but when we took our children and all of them were old enough I think I'm not sure I think all of them maybe were teenagers or close and you know teenagers not easily impressed by uh, you know feats of nature they're impressed by gadgets and gizmos and uh, you know things like that and rides at Adventureland and you know worlds of fun that kind of stuff but by nature not so much so we, we got out of the car and we walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and they all went wow they were marveling. They were astonished. They were amazed. Jesus is amazed at his faith. And then he turns uh, to, to the other people there and he, he, he says, look, this guy puts the rest of you to shame. Now, he didn't say that exactly, but he says, I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. That must have hurt because they were the religious experts, right? And they were the religious people. They were God's chosen people. And then he took the occasion to dissuade them or to educate them on some misconceptions about the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, look at what he said in verse 11. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. East and west means Gentiles. There's going to be a whole bunch of Gentiles coming into the kingdom, folks. And you need to understand that. I want you to look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus didn't think this up on his own. This is God's plan from the beginning. And from the rising of the sun, even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Back in Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 3, he says, Abraham... In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus is simply repeating the same thing. It's coming to everybody, not just you. And he, the, so the centurion becomes an illustration of the fact that salvation, that entering the kingdom of heaven is not something that's done by our works or because of our heritage or because of our name, but because of our faith. And particularly, we become children of Abraham in the spiritual sense through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4. I want you to look at Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited to him as a favor, but as to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him to righteousness. 
Nobody is credited with righteousness apart from belief. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul said this, Therefore be sure that it is that those who are, the, who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Through faith in Christ, we become children of Abraham. He's saying, this centurion is just an illustration of that. So I ask you this morning, are you among the many who will enter the kingdom of heaven, who are in the kingdom of heaven because of your faith in Christ? There's no other way. There's no other way. But to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that you are a sinful person, and that he paid the debt that you deserve to pay, and you turn from your sin, and you trust in Christ's death as the payment you deserve, and you receive the forgiveness that only God can give, and you become a child of God. This centurion was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman. Ethnically, culturally, no. He was on the outs, but no. Jesus says, you're on the end. And then he turns the tables and says something even more offensive to them. And many, he says, in verse 11, or verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, that's the, the Israelite nation, those who thought they were in, those who felt entitled, will suffer condemnation. They're false sons. They're religious, but they're not righteous. That's my fear. And you've heard me say it before. That in the church of Jesus Christ, we have very many religious people. But are we righteous through the blood of Christ because of our faith in Him? That's the only way. They're banished, those who thought they're in. Several years ago, there was a birthday party in my extended family. And certain members of my family were not invited. On the outs excluded by all means thought they would be invited thought they as members of the family should be included but nope on the outs Jesus says look there are many who you think are on the outs you Israelites they're on the in and you're on the out it's through faith in Christ and these people were rejecting the person and the work of Jesus and then the text says, he spoke and the servant and it was healed. The text in verse 13, that very hour, immediately, instantaneously. See, I think the power of Christ should scare us. It should scare rebels into believing in Jesus. It should scare the righteous into behaving like Jesus. There's one final demonstration of power to the outcasts that we see. We observe Jesus' authority, and I said sickness, okay, in the outline, but it's really, you know, there, there's the, the sickness is spiritual and physical. So in the last few verses, there are two instances. First of all, Peter's mother-in-law, and the predicament is she's sick. And if you're uh, into this kind of thing, you can see this, this step, stair step, okay? She, Jesus comes in. She's sick lying on the bed. She has a fever. Jesus says, be healed. The fever leaves, she gets up, and then she ministers to Jesus. So it kind of goes like that. Okay. It's just the opposite. It goes down and then up. You know, down and then up, back up the hill. Okay. So she was sick. Women were a, an outcast member of the society in the first century, folks. Okay. They were not 
seen as sometimes as important. That doesn't mean they weren't, it just they weren't seen that way. And so here Jesus is ministering to a leper. Ooh, they're on the outs. Ministering to a centurion. Whoop, shouldn't do anything with them. Now he's ministering to a woman. And what does he do? He, we see the power of Jesus. He touched her. There again. And immediately the fever left. He touched her. His compassion and his care. And then we see many healed in verses 16 and 17. And the predicament is this, you know, I mean, Jesus is doing this stuff. And you got the leper out there. He didn't keep his mouth shut. So everybody gets to know what's going on. And so they bring everybody there. See the dog and pony show. Jesus is, is doing whatever. So let's get them there to see it and experience it. Don't, don't blame them for coming. They did that, Okay. The demon possessed and the disease. Now we see the power of Jesus. Look at verse 16. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. Both diseases and demons were subject to his authority. Immediately. Now, why was Jesus doing all this? That's the, the, the question that's answered in verse 17. The reason Jesus was performing all of these miracles these works of power and demonstrating was in order to fulfill what had been prophesied of him, confirming his identity as a servant Messiah that Isaiah said was coming that would die for the sins of mankind. That's my abbreviation of verse 17. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And if you went on through verse 6, you would see that this is a prophesy of the suffering servant who would die for the sins of people. But then you say, well, yeah, but Matthew kind of translates it like he took away our sicknesses and he took away our diseases, which he did. When did he do that? He did it at the cross. He carried our infirmities. He removed and carried our diseases on the cross so that the acts of physical healing that he did then and, and any that he does now and the exorcisms only demonstrate his authority and his identity and his authority over all infirmities. And they anticipate, look at folks, what he did there was just a taste. They anticipate the full and final realization of the free, of life that's free from all deformity, all disease, all death, all disability, all disunity. That's coming when Christ returns. In his, and, and, and all that was made possible when and where and how? On the cross of Christ. He conquered sin and death. And all sickness, illness is done with, is dealt with, but it's not over. All of the things that have been given to us, we are owners of, but we don't fully experience it yet. Romans chapter 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you can write this down if you would, but in Romans chapter 8, we're told that all creation is groaning and waiting. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. This is Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. For the anxious longing of creation awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Folks, we live in a corrupted world. Corrupted by sin. Which means we have disease. Which means we have disability. Which means Satan is the prince of the power of this world. Which means there will be demonic activity. Even today, as we witness what's going on in our world, we see the influence of the enemy. Now, by willing and unwilling participants sometimes. But the chaos and the destruction in our land is not of God. This is not like God is pleased with all of this that's going on. No, but the text goes on to say that we will get a new body if we're in Christ. Right now we have been redeemed. And so every bit of healing, everything that happens in our our thing now is just a, a foretaste. It's just a taste of what will happen when all corrupting influence is done away with finally and fully when Christ returns. All healing now is a foretaste of the future blessings awaiting believers in glory that points us to the only one who can really bring healing. Folks, the answer to the chaos in our country and the world is Christ. He redeems our soul and then ultimately he redeems our body so that we live with him in glory unhindered. That's the message of hope we have for the world. It's not revolution. It's not that we can bring about reconciliation. Christ did it on the cross. We just need to live it. In submission to what he did. In surrender to what he did. All of us, instead of demanding and whining and complaining about where it is I'm at and what my problem is, no, live for Jesus. We sang a song when we started this thing. All for Jesus, and I'm going to live for him. I surrender my life, just what he's done. I mean, that's not exactly the words, right? Because I'm a little musically challenged, don't remember all the words, but that's the essence of it, okay? Is that really true? You know, Micah challenged us last week, you know? Cling on, cling to Christ. My, one of my best friends in the world says, he says, living for Jesus ought to be like hanging on, on the ragged edge or, or the ragged edge of a rope over a cliff. You know? You throw me over a cliff, guess what? I'm hanging on. We're hanging on to Christ. That's where we ought to be. I ask you this morning. The central message of the gospel is not riches. It's reconciliation with God because we're sinners condemned to hell. The message of the gospel is not health and wealth. No, it's healing of my soul. There's no promise, but there is power. So I ask you this morning, do do you dare to believe God for the power to bring about miraculous works in your life? in the lives of others, healing of your physical ailments, and the most miraculous thing, the conversion of a soul that's headed to hell, coming into the kingdom of God. That's the most miraculous thing that could ever happen. I found out this week that one of my friends had been diagnosed with cancer. He's not an old person. He's a young person. He just wants to live long enough to see his family raised. I'm praying for healing. Because God is able. But you know what? 
Do we dare to believe that God is able and yet not demand that He does what I want? Because that's the difference. I dare to believe He's able, but I have no basis for demanding that God will do it. Let's confess Jesus as Lord. If you're here and you're listening and you do not know Christ, these miraculous works testify to His reality as the Messiah. And there is hope in no one else. And the greatest thing you could do is to acknowledge that you are deserving of His judgment, God's judgment. And that because Christ died on the cross, you can be free from that judgment because God is, as we were reminded last Sunday night, absolutely holy and absolutely just. And His holiness demands that His justice, that punishment be made for our sin. And on the cross of Christ, Jesus paid it. If we accept it, it is ours for the taking. And turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And if you're here this morning and listening online and you know Christ as your Savior, then hey, let's confidently seek God to bring healing, physical, spiritual, emotional healing to people's lives and be content with whatever He decides. We seek Him for it, but we're content with whatever His choice. Are we seeking and yet submissive to His providence? That's the question. And then commitment of us as believers. Folks, Jesus went to the outcasts. Are we willing to show the mercy of God to all people? Are we willing to share the message of Christ indiscriminately with all people? As we, as we take moments to, to ponder the, the bread and the cup, which are symbols of what Jesus did, we, we ponder the price that he paid. To purchase our redemption, our spiritual redemption, and our bodily redemption in glory. And we're reminded of all that he's done, that all the benefits of our faith are secure. They're not all experienced now, but they're all secured. Not all experienced, but they're all secured. So rebels, make sure you're one of the many. That's my challenge this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And the righteous, hey... Let's make known Christ's care for the hurting and the healing that he brings. And let's begin to trust him for it in our own lives, for his glory, redemption of our souls. Through faith in Christ, redemption of our bodies comes the same way. For him and to him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the power of Jesus I pray that we would understand that you, Lord Jesus, came and you demonstrated these works of power to give us a taste of what glory will be like with you. You never promised us that you would heal every disease, that you would heal every sickness or illness or emotional instability, but you are able. We pray that you would be willing we ask, if you're, if you're willing, we know you're able. We pray that you would help us as we take some time to reflect on our own hearts and souls. I pray that every person here listening and online uh, would take some time. And if we need to surrender our lives to you, that we would. And if we need to commit to live more fully for you and to trust you and to behave like Jesus, to reach the outcasts and the aliens and the strangers, those who are the least of these, that you would give us courage to do it. We pray in Jesus' name.
We're going to take a few moments uh, to remember Jesus and his death on the cross, his body broken and his bloodshed. Uh, for those of you at home, we invite you uh, to take bread and juice if you have it, as Jesus asked us to do each week in remembrance of him. If you're here, uh, you should have a cup on your chair. Uh, just take that during this next song and uh, use it as a time of reflection and remembrance of what Jesus has done for us.
grace, we need to take that to the world and we go with a gracious and a loving heart and our words toward them. But at the same time, we need to talk about sin. You need to talk about sin. Once people realize they're guilty, they'll appreciate their need for a savior. The thing I have found so often is people don't recognize their need for the savior. You go, if you go right into, man, Jesus loves you and, and, and he wants to save you, that most people, they actually save from what? Like, well, I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. People need to recognize their need for the savior before they'll appreciate the savior. And so using the Ten Commandments, showing people that they're guilty, uh, really it pushes them. There's a verse in Galatians, I think it's 3.24, where it says, the law is like a schoolmaster that uh, drives us to Christ. It's a schoolmaster. The Ten Commandments aren't there to save you. They're just there to show you your problem. They push you to the solution. So it's like a thermometer. If I've got a fever... I use a thermometer to measure my, my temperature, to see what my problem is. I take out the thermometer, and wow, I got 104 temperature. I see that thermometer helped me to see I've got a problem. Now, nobody that has a fever, after seeing the thermometer 104, says, oh, I'll swallow the thermometer to solve this problem. No, the thermometer is not, I mean, it's not going to solve your problem. It's just going to, it's there to show you the problem. That's the law. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the beginning of the Bible. It shows you your problem. You have sinned against a holy God and judgment is coming. You're in big trouble. It shows you that you're dirty. James talks about the law being like a mirror. You, you look in the mirror and you see, wow, I've, I've, I've got a little bit of dirt up here and I've got some paint over here and I, I'm, 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 my hair is all messed up. But nobody takes the mirror off the wall and then rubs it on their face. The mirror doesn't take care of the problem. It just shows you the problem. That's the law. The law shows you the problem, and it drives you to the solution revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only solution. And so you use the law not to save people, but to show them their problem, to show them they're lost. And then you come up with the last point right here. Jesus reveals to this lady who he is. We are to reveal to the people that we're sharing the gospel with who Jesus is. In verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. She was just saying, man, I know that the Messiah is supposed to come. And Jesus says, I'm him. And so we are supposed to reveal then to people who Jesus is. You talk, Christ and Christ crucified. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 2. You qualify. You qualify to be an evangelist. You're not eloquent. You're trembling, full of fear, not a lot of wisdom. But then in the middle, that, that those verses 1 and 3, are, they sandwich verse 2. I came to you preaching Christ and Christ crucified. This is what we preach. So we, yes, Convince them or convict them of their sin and then reveal the person of Christ as you see Jesus did in this personal evangelism encounter. So Jesus, what did he do talking to this woman in, in personal evangelism? First, he related to her. He created an opportunity to talk about spiritual things. He convicted her of sin and then he revealed the person of Jesus. His, he revealed who he was to her. We are to reveal the person of Jesus. So, Let's, that was, sorry, that was so long. Oh, I'm trying to give you seven messages in an hour. I don't even, what time am I supposed to stop?
Are we? Right now? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Um, turn to your neighbor real quick, and then we'll, we'll have a conclusion here at the end. But yeah, try to say back basically some of the things that I just talked about, what Jesus did in his personal evangelism. We are, we're already over time. I'm so sorry. There's so much to say, so much to do, and we still need to go out and spend an hour on the street. So, uh, no, maybe, maybe next time, maybe next time. But let me, um, I guess a good question was asked about maybe you're going through the, the questionnaire and, and someone is just, they, they say, you know, I don't really, I don't believe in God. I don't, you know, the whole Bible thing. I, I don't believe that. Um, and, and what do you do then? Um, and, and my answer was, it depends on how they say that. If they, if you can tell, man, they do not want to talk, they're done. That just, I mean, be very hospitable, be very nice, man. Thank you for participating in the, in this questionnaire. And we're, we're going on, we want to get, you know, different people's opinions and thank you for participating go on but if it does seem like there's a little bit of interest even though they're saying saying this i don't believe in god i don't believe in the bible you know a lot of times i will say to them that is fascinating like why i i've never actually met anybody that is like really deep down inside doesn't believe in god i've heard a lot of people say that but i would be fascinated to hear why don't you believe in god would you consider yourself an atheist i just i would really like to hear where you're coming from People like to talk and give their opinions, and I want to learn from them. I want to hear what, what, where they're coming from. And so oftentimes, people will be, they'll give their argument of something that ba bad happened in their life, and how could God, a good God, allow this kind of suffering, or some bad experience with the church, or, uh, you know, there's all, all these different arguments, and basically, it all boils down to about five different answers, and they're really good answers that the Bible gives to all of those. And so, anyway, I want to talk with people, and if they seem open to talking about things, uh, once again, I do not want to force a conversation. It is the worst thing in the world to just force the gospel on people. I'm not, I do not want to do that. I don't want to encourage you to do that. There are actually a lot of people out there that like to talk about spiritual things, that, that are interested in talking to a Christian that is concerned about them and that in love has some answers to the questions. And so um, I'm looking for those kinds of people. Once again, it's like a filter system. Um, if they don't want to participate, they don't even want to talk to me from the beginning, okay, that's fine. I'm not going to force them to. If they want to go through the questionnaire, that's great, but they get to the end of it and say, ah, you can tell they just, they don't want to go any further. That's great. But if they, they're a little bit more interested, man, they get more and more through that filter. I am looking for people in the end, we travel a lot, so it's more difficult for us. But if you're, you know, pretty much stationary, um, you're looking for people that you can make a friendship with. Um, and not a project out of them or anything like that, but just f being the friend, a Christian friend to this person, an opportunity maybe to get into an evangelistic Bible study. People are going to get saved through the reading of the scriptures, through the study of the scriptures. So I want to get into a Bible study with them. Um, I, we had a friend, um, maybe some of you, uh, maybe not. I don't know if somebody would know the name Floyd Schneider here. Yeah, um, but he, he's from Portland, Oregon, our, our uh, assembly in, in Portland that we're from. 
Um, but he would do these evangelistic Bible studies, very friendly guy, very interesting guy, but he was very good at just making conversations with people and just starting uh, friendships, friendship evangelism. And he, but he would not waste much time. He would ask people, you know, after the first two or three times that he's met with these people, hey, you want to just get together and read the Bible, a little Bible study? And uh, he would get into these Bible studies with people, and he had Bible study, a Bible study going Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, with different people, and then these individuals would start to invite their friends, and so pretty soon he ended up with these home Bible studies every night of the week with different groups. Some of these groups were 20 people, and they ended up, other groups would end up 15, another group would end up maybe 25, but all these night Bible studies, and all it was was he'd go through the book of John, and all he did was ask questions. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do you think that means? What's the beginning? What do you think this means by, you know, the word. What's that? All he did was ask questions. And his famous statement was, I don't have any answers. I just have questions. And he was just friendly to people and loved people. And man, people just came to these Bible studies and people get saved just reading the Bible. Amy and I were in one of these studies and he was discipling us and showing us how he did it. And we would bring unbelievers and man, we would have, we would have a dinner and then we'd have this Bible study. It was just a good time. And you'd just go around and ask questions. And after a couple of weeks, this, this lady that was coming to the study, I think she professed to be an atheist in the beginning, but she started coming in and she started, we were just going through John and and she gets to this point where it was like this light comes on and she just like says to the whole group, there's like 25 people sitting there in the living room. She goes, Jesus is God. We got to tell like the whole world, you know what? I think we should all start inviting our friends to this study. And once people start reading the Bible, they'll see for themselves, God is real. Jesus is God. And he died on the cross for our sins. And, and, and then like this would go from the study would just like expand and we'd start more of them in different houses. And then like it would just spread across the city and across the country. And Floyd just goes, yeah, that's kind of the idea. <laughs> But uh, just getting people into the Bible, getting people into the Bible, but it's got to begin with personal relationships, meeting people, trying to relate to them, creating an opportunity. You've got to take that step, trying to open up the door, talk about spiritual things, talking to them about sin, convicting them of sin, and then revealing the person of Jesus Christ. But uh, getting people into God's word and really remembering as we're talking to people, God is holy, God is just, and God is love. Uh, in the beginning there was light and life and love, but we see the opposites in this world. And he who is light and life and love, he, he, he's come to our darkness and death and disconnection. He's lived it. He's experienced it. He plunged it all down into the grave. He rose again on the third day, and now he's calling out, you in death, come to my life. You in darkness, come to my light. You in light. Oh, no, I forgot that. In disconnection, come to my love. If I can't even say it right, how are you guys going to? But uh, you guys are much smarter than I am and can remember these things. But anyway, there's so much, uh, so much to say. And uh, I just want to try to encourage and uh, inspire you to um, be bold. Be bold. And uh, don't be weird. But uh, we need to be bold and try to go forward with this message. Yes. Living Waters, uh, maybe it's Living Water. Living Waters, okay, yeah, they have they have fantastic tracks, really, really good 
some of them are, are visual tricks that trick your eyes. And, uh, and, and so anyway, all, a, lot of the, a lot of them are just, uh, they're made uh, high quality with a really good, concise gospel message on the back. But yeah, um, uh, having good tracks with you is, I used to kind of think tracks are for little kids. But I have found that it is, it's actually really helpful to, to start conversations or you're at a restaurant or whatever, just leave a tract and um, trying to open up doors to start conversations. So anyway, I don't know if I should open it up for questions because we're way over. I guess if you have questions, uh, you can come to me personally and, and ask afterwards, but we should probably give opportunity for people to get back to their... Uh, roast that is percolating in the uh, Instapot at home. And if that's you, just tell me about it. So uh, maybe we'll come over and have dinner at your place. (laughs) Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the great, great opportunity and great responsibility to be your ambassadors here on earth for the short amount of time that we are here, so short in comparison to eternity. Our, our lives are like a vapor that appear for a little while and they vanish away. And uh, Lord, we have such a short amount of time. We want to take advantage of every moment. Um, help us to look for opportunities um, each day to try to share something of the love of Christ with, with people around us. Help us to... Um, Look to open up the door to talk about spiritual things. Help us to um, even uh, be be so assertive as to to go out with questionnaires uh, to really uh, look for these opportunities everywhere and everywhere, anywhere we can. So, Lord, we we put our lives in your hands and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would help us to be bold. In Jesus' name, Amen.